Hello, and welcome to Off the Shelf, your true crime book club podcast. In 1873, Dr. William York of Independence, Kansas, set out to uncover what had become of a neighbor who, along with his infant daughter, had disappeared while en route to Iowa. After searching up and down the Kansas plains, Dr. York would likewise vanish, just as many men had before him. Men who had had the misfortune to stop at a little isolated farmhouse on the desolate plains near Cherryvale, Kansas. For there, you see, some 18 months prior, a murderous family of outlaws, thieves, and grifters had set up shop, preying on unsuspecting travelers. By the time York disappeared, the surrounding towns had realized that too many people had gone missing, and that there was a threat lurking somewhere on the plains. What that threat was precisely would not be discovered until weeks later, when York's brothers set out to find him. The brothers' ham-fisted search, however, succeeded in alerting the murderous family that they were in danger of discovery, and thanks to their blundering, they packed up and disappeared into the night, and into legend, never to be brought to justice. This is the case of the Bloody Benders, a family of serial killers who, for a time, were perhaps the greatest threat on the Kansas frontier. Author Susan Genesis has attempted to track the Benders, and her book, Hell's Half Acre, is our book club selection for the month. Joining me to discuss this book is Jonathan Menges and John Reese. Hello. Hey, John. How are you doing? I'm right. How are you? I am about done with van life, let me tell you. How's life on the open road then? <laughs> It's it's an adventure every day. I have. <laughs> Before it, we get started, can oh. we can we um go over the rating system again? Okay. <laughs> and and um, I know we do this uh, probably every episode, but um, I feel like this part should be included for the all time. So uh, like <laughs> we will officially define it now, so that there is no more argumentation. And then, so um, if I give something four stars, let's say, as opposed, like, what, 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 what is your guys's definition of five stars? That's basically what I would like to get clear. This of. is how I, in my head, and John may have a different one, but in my head, a five star book is like a plus plus kind of a no thing. No faults whatsoever. No faults whatsoever. A four point seven five is an a solid A. A 4.5 is like an A minus. Okay. A 4.25 is like a B plus. A four yeah, here's is where like where we get into the gray area. This is where we get, um, you know, a, a B I, is I, like I, I didn't know. I, I I didn't know we were going on uh, you know on on point two five measures. I thought we were just going on. You know, <laughs> oh, I I have to start parsing them now because well, there's my, been enough books guess, that I like. Like, which do I like better? Like, do well, I like yeah, this my, better than? I guess my um my uh my question would have been like, can a book still be a five even though it has some faults? If like, that's do, how you would, feel, would the positive uh aspects of the book outweigh the negatives enough for it to reach that five star or what am i forced to ding the book you aren't forced to do anything down. it's not like you're getting well, paid for this jonathan there are no there are well, no i know but it has created controversy <laughs> I'm in the past. 
Huh? I'm laughing at your pen just then. Yeah, oh, I like yeah. how he's emphasizing. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> With his little fluffy, he's got a little fluffy feather pen and he's making very em- <laughs> emphatic gestures. Do I have to rate this book? <laughs> Um, so, you rate it we, however you want and come up with whatever criteria soothes your soul and we can okay, all do as that. As long as um, a two and a half star <clears throat> is not a, it, 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 it is a recommendation, I guess. No, a two and a half star is not a recommendation for me. Anything oh, no. under anything under three I, is not a recommendation for okay. me. Okay. Yeah, the way I look at it is five excellent, um, four above average or very good um three average two below average one awful zero do not read this book or you so we can give zeros for me Um, one is i do not recommend it at all under any circumstances two is you can read it but it's a chore three is you can read it for, but there's a lot of caveats involved in the reading of it. Four is a recommended read. Five is, oh, please read this. So okay, anywhere so I falling forget, in there. Um, are we now? Do you guys personally um, kind of like think back to the star rating you gave other books we've reviewed in in then in in giving the star rating for this book? Because, like, I don't remember what I gave Dr. Cream. No, I can't remember, right? You gave Dr. Cream a zero. No, I'm kidding. No, I I thought it was okay. But that's the one where it jumped around chronologically a while. Yeah, we gave that one, like, a a 3.75 is what I think I gave it. And I I think you guys gave it, like, a four or something. I think I had the star charts. Perhaps we should keep a record of these things. Yes, we should. We, we should be professional, but let's be real. We, we won't be doing that because this is for fun, not for like as soon as somebody starts paying me a million dollars to do this podcast, I'll start taking it seriously. Right. Like I do take it seriously, but I'm not like going to sit. I don't care too much. That's about, like, like what, what one of my dreams is, Allie, is that <laughs> someone from some podcast network, you know how people can get on podcast networks and become like instant millionaires influencers um, and uh, see that's my thing. nightmare i don't want to be famous i would never want that like there's too no, much but scrutiny. i want to be rich you um, can't be rich without being famous now yeah you can yeah. not in yeah. podcasting no not in podcasting <laughs> but <laughs> like, like this is a, you can either be obscure and happy and poor, or you can be pressured. Well, you and can be rich and, rich and famous. Uh, you can be rich and not famous if you're the person that owns there you all go. of those monetized podcasts. That's what yeah, I want to be. That's what I would tell I, I, I kind of hope yeah. that you know someday some podcast network will swoop in and want to buy rippercast basically to put me out of business but you know or at least steal the name of the show or something like that um you know oh, we're gonna work- have to we're gonna have to change off the shelf to casebook off the shelf then so that way like when they buy out rippercast which i totally hope happens for you though i do not want to be a part of that deal i mean i don't it's, ex- it's now casebook off the shelf happening i don't obviously i don't anticipate it's like you know dreaming to win the lottery you know it's equivalent um 
As long as Rippercast and that. Off the Shelf are not like, because I want to be obscure and very little known. <laughs> my my contract for sale will will have an addendum saying <laughs> that this sale of this property does not include any episodes of Off the Shelf. Awesome! There we go. We'll just we'll make it case or Adler off the to shelf. Amberly, unless John and 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 Carl want to cash out too. But no, they can buy out the family. <laughs> we'll start a new podcast it's fine uh all righty yeah. let's get started on this so today we're, we're actually going into the topic now listeners john reese what did you think of the book um overall i enjoyed it i i thought that it started off um a little bit not slow as such but kind of like here's these people that went to the benders and nothing happened or they got suspicious and nothing happened um then I think it picked up a bit, you know, when the crimes were discovered and there was a bit of like a mad rushy thing. Um, but I, I've, got, I've got to be honest, because the the setting doesn't interest me all that much. Perhaps that's why it, I did, it did struggle to grab my attention at first. Is it just because you're prejudiced against American crime and Ex- think that English crime is better? It's not just against American crime. I'm prejudiced against Americans in general. So, you know... <laughs> All right, John, Jonathan Menges, your go. Um, I really liked the book, and I was curious to hear what John had to say because of the location that it's set in and the time period that it's set in. I'm a native Kansan. I already was familiar with the case. So I really enjoyed the book. It, it's kind of right up my alley. For me, um, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was well-written. With one caveat, it took me a while to start enjoying the book because nothing was sourced, nothing was cited in the actual text of the book. And as I was reading it, I was like constantly thinking to myself, well, how does she know this? Right. And I was like, yeah. um, how, 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 how does she know this? Is she just making this up? And there were a couple of bits that I, it, it was pure narrative invention. Like there was a part in there where she was talking, um, like the Benders were having a conversation and like Kate Bender turns to her husband, brother or whatever he was to her and says something like, get Ma, I don't cook. Clearly that's narrative invention that like she has no way of knowing that that happened but as i was reading through it and then they started saying stuff like in his book that he wrote in blah 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 and i was like oh right. so there is a book but nothing was cited when yeah. these different things were coming up originally and i was constantly like okay is this just historical fiction is it did she make like a you know those books where they take henry the eighth and they make a, a historical novel out of it and i was really confused but then like once i got to the end of the book and i saw she has just page after page after page of this is where i got this from this is where i got this from this is where i got this from yeah. oh okay so there actually are sources to back up a lot of this it was just such a weird way of doing it without and i'm not a citer like i don't check every single citation that somebody writes but i do notice when there isn't citations for something that i feel should be and right. then yeah. i was i was confused yeah. so once i got past that hurdle i enjoyed the book and the narrative more i'm 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 the same i don't look at every citation religiously but i do like to glance down at say the footnotes and be like oh well that's from a newspaper article or that's from a, a court testimony um or, or something like that you know so i um 
I like to be able to know where things are. It's quite an old, old-fashioned way of doing it. Um, I think the way she's done it, where there's just, you know, a section at the back where it's like in this chapter I use these sources and stuff like that. It's kind of like a popular history book from, say, I don't know, forty or fifty years ago, rather than like a modern history book. Um, I suppose it comes where true crime and history blend into each other as well, because there's quite a bit of, you know, a lot of true crime books are history books, etc. Like, I I agree with both of you, maybe, you know, in the first 30, 40 pages of the book, I was feeling the exact same way, Um, is what is what is invented and what is um, actually sourced. Um, So maybe if she would have started off the book with an introduction or something explaining to the reader what the the primary source documents were, making the reader aware that Mary York wrote a memoir about the case just two years after the discovery of her husband's body, letting the reader know that Leroy Dick, the township trustee, um, wrote a memoir about the case giving the reader a sense of what it turns out to be is a voluminous amount of material that exists in print, then you could possibly get away with the way she does her notes at the end, knowing that, you know, Mary York's material in particular, she uses judiciously. Yeah, because there was... There was like one part where she was talking about Mary York and it was like, even though on the outward surface, she was continued in her Christian pleasing ways in her heart, she thirsted for vengeance. And I was like, right. Okay. Well that would totally apply to me. I'm not going to lie. Like that's, that's totally possible, plausible. How do you know this? And even still, when, when, when we find out that she wrote the memoir though, I don't have a citation for it. I don't right. have the, the thirst for vengeance part of it. I know Mary wrote a memoir. I'm sure somewhere in there, she must've said something. I'm hoping somewhere in there, she said something to the effect of how her heart thirst for vengeance or she was still um, wanting vengeance. Because mm-hmm. while it is a plausible scenario for me and many people I know, it wouldn't be for everybody. You know, maybe the, the grief was just all consuming. So I just, I, it, that part to me still like, like, I think I reached, I reached out to John Reese who had the uh, paper copy of the book. Cause again, I'm traveling and I'm reading everything via Kindle right now. And I, and I actually asked him, I'm like, okay, d- does your book have citations? Is my ebook copy, uh, like, was it bad formatting? Did I just not get the citations? Does yours have it? And then he's the one who told me like, no, even the regular book doesn't have it right. cited. And, and, the, and the ebook copies don't, as far as I recall, don't have hyperlinks to the notes section. So um, my, some of mine do mine do when I have an ebook. No, a lot of this them one do. in particular. This, this one this didn't even have discussing. citations to e-link anything. Right. Yeah. Right. Nothing so was. so when you get to the notes, you're flipping through almost like a summation of the sources that she um, used in the chapters, but the chapters themselves don't have a link directly to the notes section is what I'm saying. Um, right. If, if, yeah. if the reader's curious. So it does almost force the reader um, if they want to know if Mary York said that she w- wanted to seek revenge or whatever, to go seek out those documents to get to, you know, to find out for yourself. 
Um, and, Which and isn't that, great sometimes. Like, like I shouldn't have to go great. research more to yeah. for what you've got in your book. Just to find out what the author might have made made up i'm not saying she made anything up but you know just to find out what what um parts of it did come directly from mary york's um memoirs as an example now in other parts of the book and especially in the notes that's the thing is like john i think you didn't have time to read the notes section i believe you um i've i've um, uh, the epilogue right yeah, I, I've 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 skimmed the note section. Um, I've right. I've kind of skimmed it, and I've kind of like as I've gone along, I've I've you know I, I finished a chapter, I finished a section, I've gone and quickly skimmed the notes that section, so I haven't read them in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, in, I, the, I, in I, the notes, she does specify. I I took this language directly from this, and she'll quote it in full. The the primary source document. Right. And, and so there you get the explanation in many cases of where she's pulling her information from directly. So the the reader would be encouraged to read the book from beginning to end, including all of the notes, read the thing straight through. But then I get the feeling that I would almost want to reread the book from the beginning like after I had gotten through it and gotten through the notes, rereading the book a second time would make it a more fulfilling experience. Uh, that's too much of an investment. I, uh, I know for me, it's I'm too afraid. much of an investment, <laughs> and it's too much of, of well, an investment for a lot of people. Yeah, for me, um, I I found the same issue when you're reading about the descriptions um, at the outlaw camps and stuff like that, because I was like how does she how does she know this and then later on it was because it was uh you know it turned out it was from the testimony was it merrick is it the guy who was yeah in prison and tried yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's it's from his statements and stuff right. like that and you're never told I, that I, yeah yeah I, I i think perhaps rather than a purely chronological uh like a pure chronology as she's tempted to do um for me a better format may have been more of a I'm trying to make like a, a revelatory chronology. So, you know, you get the bit with Merrick being arrested and then you get from his statements, the reconstruction of the... So kind of like uh, the cream book in a way, time jumping might have been... I'd, 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 I'd say more flashbacks than time jumping. Um, so rather than jumping about the timeline, just go like, you know, this is Merrick. And then mm-hmm. this is what Merrick has told us. And, uh, right. you know, so kind of like flashbacks. Yeah. And also one of the things I had a problem with in the way that she did the the citations at the end was that, um, and again, I want to rephrase, this isn't cite, there aren't actually citations, but the her sources at the end, um, is that she put a lot of information in those citations that I think would have been better actually included in the book and when i was when when i was interviewing another author for for off the shelf um mw oldridge um when i was interviewing him he made a point of saying how he had decided a long time ago that anything that 
he felt was worthy of including in the citations in the sources should just be in the book. And I agreed with him at that point, at that time when we were talking about it. And I actually don't know if that part made it into the interview or not, because that was when we were just sort of talking about my disdain for footnotes and preferring in notes. But, and I, but I agree with that. Like there were parts in, in her source at the end where I'm like, why wasn't this included in the actual narrative like it was hinted at but like so for example she made a very clear connection between the ground having been frozen after the i forgot the name of the the man with the child but the the, the man with the child that they killed she you know and then like apparently it was like a Long day later car. that about a day later the 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 two guys showed up with the dog and the dog was going crazy sniffing around the the camp well i obviously understood that the dog was probably alerting to smells and alerting to to um all of these types of things but it wasn't until the source material where i was like oh they were literally there like one day later and apparently the ground was so frozen that she was speculating that they were still in the trap door underneath that they hadn't been buried and mm -hmm. that's why well, maybe the aunt or the child was still alive because right. And and the, the body was still in the pit in the cellar, yeah. Right. And I'm like, that should have been in the actual text. That right. shouldn't have been buried back in in the in the in notes and the citations and the in the in the in the whatever. So I just had a couple of problems like that with the with the with the function of the book and how it was written. But again, I learned a lot of things that I had no idea. Like I knew the story of the benders, I knew the basic murderous serial killer family that disappeared into legend but i didn't realize one that they were a member of a criminal enterprise i didn't know that they were In there theory. was known information about them afterwards i sort of had the folklore knowledge like you know and this makes me appreciate like people who come to jack the ripper and we bag on them all the time for reading one book and then you know coming in and thinking they know you know i'm like oh this is me and every other true crime scenario right. now because i have very limited knowledge and and didn't realize there's all this other stuff going on underneath right so one thing that john brought up um a few minutes ago was about the um the same merit storyline and, and i agree when when as far as um, not knowing like how, how she knew this, yada, yada, um, the author. Uh, so once it got to the escape part, when they show up at the train station and are identified and, and then catch, hop, hop the train that was just arriving, get out of town, go to Denison, Texas, you are left with the, the, that like, um, well, how does she know this, right? Because the, the thing about the Bender case is, is um, and I believe I mentioned this either in private or in a prior podcast uh, a month or so ago, and she mentions this in her source material, that the prevailing opinion to this day in, in parts of Kansas, and the, the theory that I grew up hearing was the one that has Alexander York responsible for a posse that uh killed the benders okay yeah but i agree with him um, like if he did that he'd been bragging all over town there wouldn't have been any repercussions okay. he would have he would have redeemed his name right if he had but done i'm that. saying i'm saying that um i agree with you um but i'm saying that that went so in the, her source material she does point this out and and that is absolutely true so when she writes she went so when she's going on in her narrative and she goes 
she takes a particular path, obviously, uh, that she presents as the truth. Them hooking up with um, the McPherson brothers, Frank McPherson in particular, um, going down to Texas, camping along the Red River, back and forth over into the Oklahoma Territory, et cetera, et cetera, is one um, fork of, of what are three or four separate theories on what happened to the Benders, right? Um, so she, she uh, goes in on that one all in, obviously. Um, and, and, but at first I was slightly confused because, um, because it was treated as absolute fact, right? Um, but then when you get into, as the story develops in her book, you do see how these several different search teams um we're on to the same trail year you know five years before sam merrick ever got that letter to the governor right well yeah because um, they had the guy came the guy like all of that stuff like the guy came from the wit from the the town and said he spoke to them and they were talking right. about going into outlaw territory like all of that i didn't you know i had the they vanished into the wilderness and nobody knows what happened to them scenario going. I was like, oh, there was a lot of trail to follow. Yeah. And I found that that part, that that aspect of the book very interesting that, um, you know, she is using all of these various source materials, but she chose to treat as fact that they were involved in, I mean, I don't think it's expressly stated or not very clearly stated in the book, possibly. But um, the, the idea is that the benders, when they were committing these murders, were stealing horses, were stealing wagons, in one case, a whole carriage full of goods because the guy with the child was actually moving his to Iowa, took everything with him. Where did they get rid of this stuff? They didn't fence it anywhere locally. No one was ever found to have aided them in selling any of this stuff locally. So the idea was that they must have had outside help to in aiding them in fencing this stolen property elsewhere. And, well, okay? I mean, logic and, would dictate that even like right. that, that would just have to be the logical conclusion because yeah. it's not like they can drive 500 miles away by wagon every time they need to fence a bunch of stuff. It's just basic and so, logic. Yeah. And so that's where Frank McPherson comes into play. He's introduced into the story, but I don't believe it, it's made completely clear to the reader what, how, how he might have been involved in the, I thought it the was. murder plot itself. I mean, um, if you're a receiver I'm, of stolen goods through murder, that's pretty much you're involved in the murder plot. Right. You know? Yeah, I, I think I, I didn't really pick on that because I was kind of trying to work out how they were involved with, um, with, with you know, with um, the uh, McPherson's, was it, and the, uh, the outlaw gangs, how they got, you know, part of that. But it, yeah, right. if it's like an existing 
network for they've kind of like been a um, been a, a stop on mm-hmm. you know they've been doing the fence thing you know and then when they get you know the the heat gets too much they go out to join right. them that makes yeah. more sense so. yeah the book the book um so and it comes into play with the Merrick um testimony where McPherson's were cousins to the Benders through or the, yeah. through the the Slimps there was a family called Slimps yeah the Slimps yeah yeah and they were hooked up with the McPhersons. The Slimps were cousins to the Benders, and 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 so that's kind of how it, they they all tied together. Um, but I thought that that maybe uh, it it could have been made more clear to the reader that 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 theory that the police that not the police but Alexander York and Leroy Dick and and their private investigators, you know, the people who were on the trail of the Benders. We're we're operating off of that theory that that they were involved in a network of criminals who fenced stolen goods and horses and stuff and sold them to the Native Americans in Oklahoma and New Mexico and Colorado. Um, so I thought that part could have been made a little bit clearer. And and, and um, but I did find it interesting that she she like I said she chose to 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 describe that aspect of the manhunt as the the truth yeah um as and, and kind of does away with the competing theories that alexander york returned the following day after his first meeting with the benders and killed them on the spot they how can you how can you have that theory if there are multiple people who saw them alive after that because there, there are people who confessed to being a part of that posse. Yeah, but we have um, later people on conf- people. But that's for the notoriety. That's for the fame later on. It's like, oh yeah, right. I killed the benders. Woohoo! Look at me. That yeah. well, we well, have the, the train. The thing is, is that yeah, but the, you know that. But that's something that that the author ha- has to deal with. Is that you, you had um, three confessions of from three different people. Who claimed to have been a mem- member of Alexander York's posse, um, who tracked down the Benders and shot them to death, um, and then okay, so that was that's one theory. Um, and Alexander York, as the book illustrates, has to continually deny this throughout the years, right? But see, I don't um, think he would have to have denied it if he had done yeah, that. He would have been like here's their heads put them on a pipe yeah. he, mm-hmm. he wouldn't have had to have denied it there are certain theories you can just dispense with because they don't hold up to the facts and the facts are there's a an unbiased train ticket taker who saw them getting on the train and even identified their 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 dog hair trunk which right. ew, gross and then they were able to follow the dog hair trunk to different stations and then there was that guy and i don't remember the town i think it was the one on the red river who talked with uh, the junior Bender guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm Bender. And this was before the news broke of who the Benders yeah. were or anything. Right. And, and, and so there's all of this trail following them down that path to outlaw territory. Yeah. Um, it, 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 when like you can have as many, I mean, how many theories surround the Jack the Ripper case, but we don't have to believe every, you know, Walter Sickert, Francis Thompson, uh, you know, right. <laughs> Vincent Van so, Gogh so was an, Jack the Ripper. It, it's so another another one. That she, <laughs> another one that she talks about in the book uh, that she talks about in the book 
but not to any great extent, which is possibly a little bit more believable than the Alexander York and his posse killed them, is the search party that went out to find them in New Mexico, um, in New Mexico territory, for no explicable reason, stopped, turned around, and came back. And, and didn't really give a good excuse as to why they stopped searching for them. So the theory behind that goes, and, and again, I believe it was followed up by later confessions down the road by members of this posse, is that they had found the benders and murdered them, um, lynched them. Um, and, and, um, and so this would have been something that would have post-dated the um, outlaw gang meet in, meeting in Denison with Merrick and the McPherson brothers. This this would have been as they were made their way up into New Mexico New Mexico territory and the Colorado River area and stuff. So that that would have been fairly plausible as well. And she doesn't I don't believe dismiss it as a possibility. Um, I mean, she you know she, she mentions the fact that people. Um, you know the belief that um, you know they, they were killed early on. You know when when you know after after that first visit and stuff like that. I, I don't think. But if she if she doesn't think there's enough evidence to support that, and mm-hmm. I know what you're saying there, Jonathan, about all the confessions after and stuff like that. But you know how many people confess to being again Ali's example, Jack the Ripper. Um, on, on the scaffold, you know, um, or like in in the public or to the press, you know, and yeah. you know it's people do things like that for notoriety. Um, yeah. I I don't think that if an author um, does think that something is completely implausible and it's not the focus of the book, and this book is very much a, a focus of let's see if we can track you know their, their their escape let's see if we can track their movements after um that's you know it, it's a bit like um a book on a book on richard the third uh richard the third you know princes in the tower if an author is convinced that richard the third killed the princes in the tower they're not going to spend chapter after chapter detailing conspiracy theories that it was actually henry, henry tudor um, right. but, but i guess i guess my greater point is is that is do you do you the two of you believe that the way she handled her chosen path, which is the pretty much tying the, the Samuel Merrick testimony together with the information that was got by um, Owens and Dennison with Detective Beers and stuff and, and Alexander York as this is what happened. Um, do you think that that was a good choice? Yes. Her throw, I- throwing it, throwing in, 100% with th- that being the solution. I think it's the logical solution. I think it's the the solution that the preponderance of the evidence supports. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's sort of like one of those things. If you have like one person in isolation is saying something, then you have to give it maybe wait. But if that person and then that person and then that person, and they're all coming together and giving a little piece of the picture and it all forms kind of like the same picture, then that's probably the truth. Not saying it is, but generally speaking, if you have all these disparate sources, all kind of giving you a piece of the puzzle, and when the puzzle comes together, then then I would say that that would be that would be the truth. We know that they had to have had a fencing network. We know that multiple people, you know, 
gave them as being with the McPhersons. And we know Merrick, uh, you know, for no benefit to himself, except he was yammering about, you know, his life in prison and was overheard talking all this stuff, uh, you know, had a very detailed story of, of what had occurred. And I that matched with that matched like pretty much exactly with the information that they had received um, through other sources, right? Through other sources, yeah. Years, so, years like, earlier. yeah, yeah. And, and that was the view the the Kansas governor took as well, because you know he he had, he was getting letters still years later from cranks or people of information. But he seems to take the Merrick testimony, according to the book at least, um, higher because of the amount of detail and because yeah. it did corroborate independent mm-hmm. um, sources it, as well. it was the governor, Osborne, who appointed Sullivan to hook up with Alexander York to go back, to go down to Texas to try to find um, the benders. And, and Merrick's testimony included that Sullivan, when he brought uh, John Gephardt, John Bender, whatever you want to call him, John Jr., um, to see Sullivan. So, so Merrick name drops the detective Sullivan. Right. And, that, and that, how would that he was have known hired that? by the governor? And right. how would he have known that unless Bender had told him that, you know? So it's like, like how you, you, he had too much information that he really couldn't have gotten unless events had transpired that way so um yeah i i give her theory the most credence out of all of them like i i i think it's the logical solution i think it's the one that's supported by evidence um sometimes the illogical is what's actually true and that happens but i think given the preponderance of the evidence we have available to us that it's most likely that they did end up with this outlaw band now the question of course still remains is what happened to them after they hooked up with the outlaw band? Did they just live out their lives as outlaws? Were they eventually killed because the heat got too much? Like what happened to them after we lose, after Merritt gets, you know, ar- arrested and thrown in jail and we have no more cooperating evidence like that, you know, now that becomes like, okay, so what happened to them? Did they just write off living happily ever after as outlaws? That's yeah. the interesting question. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I, I want to discuss a point from the case itself. This isn't related to the book as such. It's more about the case. But the whole Sarah and is it Almira thing yes. towards the end? What on earth is, you know, I'm going to accuse, you know, my daughter of being Kate Bender. I'm going to accuse my mother of being Mar Bender. And they don't seem to realize that, you know, they're going to get accused of being the opposite. It, it's right. Not everybody's that, that bright. So bizarre to me and then i'm not going to discuss i'm not going to discuss my time in prison because it'll show me the bad light even though it is a cast iron alibi for these murders i'm being accused of being committed (laughs) (laughs) never underestimate stupid people in their ability to be stupid i was just i was i I was in such disbelief in that part Uh, yeah and you want, I mean, there has to be a pathology there where like your life is just so, I don't know, boring that you'll do anything to liven it up, including walk yourself to the gallows, stick your head in the noose and drop the trap yourself. Like how, how dull must your life be if that seems like a reasonable I, alternative? 
I, I, I just, I, I just had this image of it being a night court with Brent Spiner as Bob Wheeler. Um, <laughs> I love that show. I loved that show when I was a kid. Oh my gosh. I don't. Um, I was going to mention. Um, she, she wrote this book during the pandemic, or, or, or she must have, because there's parts in the notes that says she was unable to go to certain uh, places to research because of the pandemic. Um, but she brings up she brings the case up to the the current day and then current news stories, and um, she mentions in the text I believe the sale of the Bender property um, that happened just a couple of years ago. But what she doesn't mention in the text is this. Uh, but she mentions in the notes, and she completely just basically says there's no evidence to support it. Is the and this goes back to Ali saying what happened to the Benders is the True West Magazine article that came out a couple of years ago that claimed to have identified Kate and John Bender as uh, Kate Bender as the owner of a pretty successful restaurant in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And they that um, this author um, claims Kate and John Gephardt were married went under the names Kate and John Bender in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. John died and then Kate went on to um, become a pretty successful businesswoman and was like a really prominent and pretty upstanding citizen of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. If you go on Find a Grave's website, and type in Kate Bender and John Bender's entries in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, you will see that this theory has taken hold because people have commented on their find a grave entries um, as if these are the Benders, you know, burning in, burn in hell, that type of language um, posted on these poor people's um, find a grave entries. Um, and she uh, mentions this in, in about two sentences in, in the notes section. And so as I was reading, and I wasn't sure if she was going to mention it at all, I read through the entire book. I was pleased that she didn't bring it up. But then I wondered why she ignored it, because it was a fairly um, well-reported news story, only to see that she dis the author dismisses it um, in, the, in the notes section as just not having enough evidence to, to sustain it. So that, that's an interesting theory that 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 she she rightfully ignores, I believe. I was gonna say it just sounds utterly ridiculous to me. <laughs> well it, it's because uh, they're they they're this the right age, they're within 300 miles of uh, Cherryvale, Kansas. They travel from Missouri. There's no record. So we're back to the Jack the Ripper thing, aren't we? That any male living in London in 1888 right. is a yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's no, there's no reliable record of these two people in uh, prior to their arrival in Glenwood Springs in 1887. Now that's probably because there hasn't been a Deborah Arif or a Pat Marshall or someone like that to look into the case. Um, but supposedly there's no record of these two people existing prior to 1878. Is that, is, is that uncommon? 
is, is yeah. it a common that, no, that would be my question so what yeah. i did was is i put in okay well this kate bender bender and glenwood springs was born in supposedly in 1848 let's just put in the name kate bender 1848 and find a grave and see how many women with that same name were born in that same year and there's pages of them yeah i mean it's it's it it, you can it's one of those things it's like the less facts you have around a case jack the ripper also being one of these is less actual facts you have around a case the more wild theories one can promote and when you have to disprove a negative it's impossible to uh put paid to some of the more outlandish speculation because oh i can believe anything i want to believe i'm like well yeah yeah i think it makes you a little gullible i i know i've I've, I've read in other books as well, you know, little footnotes saying, you know, the records for this year were in the, the courthouse of, you know, this this town, which was you know, destroyed in a flood in this year or, you know, you know that type of thing. So the, the absence, you know, even, you know, you said there's pages and pages, but even then, the absence of evidence, because there were no centralised records at the time, isn't necessarily a suspicious thing um you know to my mind mm-hmm. there's um uh, there, i do have um there's something i want to criticize a little bit about the book um and that's the the amount of times where you hear i i said i because i don't know about much about the case uh other than reading this book but there's there's these illustrations from uh harper's harper's weekly yeah, Harper's Weekly. There's illustrations in the book from Harper's Weekly. And it keeps on saying this is taken, you know, from a photograph. And in the original photograph, do these original photographs no longer exist? <clears throat> no, they um, exist. Yeah, they're at the yeah. Kansas State Historical Society. They're all viewable online, too. Yeah, that, that was my point. What, what, yeah, so why... I'd have liked these to be included in the book rather than illustrations. Um, same as, you know, the, the murder weapons still exist. Why is that an editorial decision? Could they not get the rights mm. to reproduce them? It just seems it could have been odd. Harper's that yeah, I would say it might have been a licensing um, yeah. thing. I don't know. I mean, you could Kansas State Historical Society possesses these stereoscopes and things, but whether... it doesn't sound like that they're particularly embarrassed about talking about the crime like some some places want to distance themselves from true crimes whereas you know they've had stamps commissioned and, and stuff like that according to the book so you know it's it just seems like a weird thing that they weren't included to me and i'm yeah. interested why that i'm wondering if it's not even so much a licensing because again not knowing when these photos were taken i don't know what the copyright is or if that was but like maybe it's like the 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 new thing of okay well Anybody who's interested is going to go and look this up online and they can easily do that. So why are we going to pay and waste pages to uh, print something that somebody can go look up online if they're that interested, which I don't necessarily agree with because I had the same thought as you when I saw the illustrations was I would like to see, I would have preferred to have seen the actual picture as opposed yeah. to an illustration. And I'm wondering if it's it like, like a combination. Life, doesn't it, I think. Yeah, and I so I wonder if it's a combination of well, they can just go look at this online; they are available online. Versus, we're not going to waste pages putting this in here. Whereas, I don't know if the Harper's illustrations were available online, so they made the choice to do it that way. 
So I I also wonder if part of her thinking was was uh, uh, using Harper's was a national um, magazine. You know, I wonder if the choice um, was kind of a backhanded way of presenting how the national press, uh, um, the fact that this became a nationwide story um, using those illustrations as opposed to the photographs taken by the local uh, Parsons, Kansas photographers, what she thought may have been more effective to illustrate the um, notoriety <clears throat> that, that the, the case quickly assumed. I'm not, I'm not sure. I had a question I wanted to get your guys' opinion on because uh, I thought of the two of you when I was reading this. So she does a lot of um, exposition on, um, on the Kansas-Missouri border wars, Civil War history. Um, she spends a lot of time talking about Alexander York, William York's brother's political career and his sinking of Samuel Pomeroy uh, in the Senate case and the Senate um, race. Did you all get bored or um, thought that some of that might have gone on too long or or did you enjoy all of that? There's a lot of background information. She throws in a lot of stuff about slavery, um, about Native American, um, you know, history following Reconstruction. Think of those that, sections of the book. That was necessary world building for me um, because my knowledge of the area and the period is so lacking. Um, I, I feel I got more, I got a better understanding um, through stuff like that. You know, you got to see the corruption, um, the change after the Civil War, you know, the aftermath of it, um, you know, the, the um, emancipation of the slaves, the, the attempts to destroy uh, Native American culture, um, you know, that, that type of thing. It was, you know, it, it was kind of necessary um, background information as far as I was concerned because it's it's a bit bizarre you know when you can when you think that this stuff is going on in you know the want of a better term you know the wild wild west um at the same time as in Britain um you've got massive industrialization and things like that it's you know it's it's, it's an interesting contrast but yeah I, I needed that information for me I found some of it necessary and I found some of it utterly unnecessary. Like I found all of the stuff about Alexander York and the things that directly related to the case and the people within the case. I thought that was interesting and, and directly relevant to the case and to the book that I was reading, but she did go into a great load of detail about, uh, you know, issues in context uh of you know slavery and and whatever that i was like and when are we going to tie this to the book like what does this have to do with the bender case directly and my personal opinion is is it's this new intersectional uh so you have to make a token a token acknowledgement of every single other group and subgroup on the planet so for me a lot of it was like the Alexander York stuff, the political stuff, that was all relevant to the Bender case. But she included a lot of stuff where I'm just like, well, this is interesting in and of itself. I don't see how this relates to the Benders. Like, I, I didn't get the whole, like, okay, how does this actually apply to the Kansas, the murders, like the Civil War is 
not happening right now? Like, why why are we spending so much time talking about this when it's not directly impacting the narrative that I'm reading about? I didn't find it all relevant. I found some of it very relevant, and I found some of it kind of included purely to, uh, you know, keep the keep people from going you're not you know writing about the broader context of people and like okay but we don't always have i i i i disagree i didn't see it like that but i'm wondering is it because you know about the type of things that were happening in that period from you know in the back of your mind because you've got an understanding of the country yeah i'm probably yeah Whereas, and, and you know, me one... and, and the author, the, you know, the author is an American, the author's British, isn't she? Um, that is true. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't, she doesn't have that cultural understanding. So, you know, to her, it's something necessary for her understanding. So she right. feels it'd be necessary to an audience as well. But that's the way I'm looking at it. Yeah. You just ask when, the author, when I, Ali. When I found out, <laughs> when I found out, I think just yesterday, uh, I didn't, I mean, I didn't bother to research the author whatsoever. But when I, when Ali told me yesterday that she was British, I was shocked because I'm a Kansas studies uh, minor in college, right? So I found all of the information that I I kind of suspected might be problematic for one one or two of you, really interesting. And I just, I assumed she, she was from Kansas. I mean, just the way that she describes in such detail this territory's history and struggles and, and the language that she uses she writes in a very flowery some you know talking about the prairie fires and and things like that i mean i you just assumed that this person was born and bred here the way that she she was able to write about our history and describe the the landscape so I thought that though, when I was reading uh, some of this, especially at the beginning of the book, where she does go in detail about um, the, the bleeding Kansas and the Civil War era, that um, it might be, you know, kind of like boring to some readers or if she was just putting in filler. Uh, so I was curious to know what you guys thought. And it might be, it might be like that kind of a thing where like, I already have background knowledge on it. I'm aware of it. I don't mind reading, you know, it's not like, I'm like, I don't want to read this kind of things in my book. It's just, as you guys know, from my like savagely ripping apart every other book, I'm like, how does this directly relate to the story that we are currently reading? And some of it, I will agree, like, you know, prairie life actually matters because if you don't know how it, what it took to go across these prairies, to get to Iowa, you know, like that, that's vital information to understand the narrative. Like I, uh, that stuff informs 100%. I will, I, I grant you that all the time, you know, it's just, there was a lot of stuff in there that didn't directly relate to Kansas prairie life, uh, the benders, any of the people in the actual story. And, you know, uh, so I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, well, eventually this will come back around mm-hmm. at some point. And it never did. It was just like, here's a whole bunch of information that happened in the civil war in, which has nothing to do with the story, but it's interesting. So here it is, you know, and I, well, I felt it, there was some a, stuff. A lot in there of that it, I, I think, I think that, that a lot of it, especially at the beginning was used to set up the, um, the, the history of the settlement of, of the area in reconstruction 
uh, by white settlers. You know, this area of Kansas was, uh, I mean, it was desolate at the time of the Benders, but it was even more desolate prior to the Civil War. You know, so so you the the population of Kansas exploded between the you know the 1850s and the 18 in 1870. Um, when they did open up all this land to white settlement. So by kicking the Native Americans down to Oklahoma, you know, so so I do think that it's relevant in setting up uh, the vendors coming to town and staking their claim, how that happens. And and then it, it kind of feeds into some of the stuff you get later on when you, you read that um, when these outlaws would go down to the Oklahoma territory, white justice couldn't necessarily pursue them because uh, there was no extradition treaty. So it's almost like the the, uh, campaign to move the Native Americans off the plains in order to um, open the area up for the white settlers uh, created the... the, um, the escape mechanism of the benders by being able to float between, you know, across, you know, float back and forth across Texas and into the Oklahoma territory without being able to be pursued by by American justice. You know, that's kind of my take. Okay. Any other thoughts, comments, queries? Or are we ready to rate the book? I, I haven't got any thoughts, comments, or queries. I'm ready to read the book. <laughs> okay. Well then, John Reese, you're up. I, ooh, I'm I'm teetering between a three point five and a three point seven five because that lack of um, that lack of references has lost points for me. You know, like in text sourcing and also the lack of illustrations I'd have liked. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking three and a half. Oh, I feel Jonathan's uh, pain. No, that's okay. <laughs> as, I, as I said, if, if 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 it was a period that interested me more, maybe it'd be slightly higher. But it's 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 it, it, it's a good book. Um, it's just it lost a couple of a uh, couple of points for that, those things. I'm gonna give it a higher rating, but not a five star. Um, I I think I'm gonna give it a four and a half. And what I what I would be knocking it for, and it's a close four and a half nearly a five what i would knock it for is as we've discussed the lack of in-text citations it would have been very helpful to know as you're reading along where she's getting her source material from or at least an explanation like i had said at the beginning of the show as an introduction to the book explaining the history of the literature behind the case and so that's really the only thing i would really knock it for um I think if you're going to read a, case, a book on the Bender case, this synthesizes everything you would need to mm-hmm. know. So uh, up to date, I would I would say it's the best book on on the Benders. Um, so it's a four and a half, eh, maybe five. Okay, for me, I really did enjoy the book. Once I got past the, how does she know this? How, but that that really <laughs> took me out of the book to a degree that I that I struggle with. Once I realized that she had included all of that source at the end, I then it became a okay. This is a bad editing choice. And for my personal taste, I would have preferred them to have interwoven the two sections 
in a better manner rather than having like a narrative story and then a sourced material like sort it was sort of separate because there was there was information in that end notes part that I felt needed to be put in the book when, when I read that I was like what wh why wasn't that in the book that should have been mm -hmm. in the book um but I think it's a comprehensive it it it, it was well written like I will you know me and and if somebody doesn't write good like like I just spoke good. Um, <laughs> does it write well. I'm tired, y'all. I've been living in a van for like months. It's it's not it's not good for me. My brain goes to goo. Um, anywho, um, it, it, I thought it was really well written. I can't remember being there was only one time where I remember the the, the sentence structure kind of made my brain twitch. Um, so I'm gonna rate it fairly highly on well written, but. I, again the segmentation of her sources if you just like a quick like you don't care about sources you're just in it for the good story uh you just want to read a good story the first half of that book i think will suit you down to the ground if you're not the kind of person who's going to be constantly where, where where did this come from where's this how does she know this if you're not that person and you just want a good story the first half of this book is 100% for you. It was well-written, entertaining story. Um, I think I'm going to rate it a 4.25. And I want to knock off a solid point because the citations annoy me so much. Um, but I, I do appreciate the writing and, and the story crafting. I just feel like it should have been blended a little bit better is my sole real critique on this. <laughs> But mm -hmm. it is it is a big critique for me. It's really y'all don't understand. Like I've been texting John, like, is this side it? Like, ugh, ugh. because it is a huge issue for me. But I, on balance, when I look back at some of the books I've read and the writing in it, and then I compare the writing in this, I, I, I it, it was well done. It was just a. I, I think I said I don't want to be that curmudgeony person who's like, well, this hasn't how it was done in my day. So I want my citations as I want my citations. But I do want my citations <laughs> as I want my citations. I want to know as I'm reading it where this stuff came from. And I didn't get that a little bit, which is which is a pain for me. So I think I'm going to come down at 4.25, although realistically, it should be a four, probably. Even you if want she Harvard would... referencing. <laughs> Even if she would have put the notes from each chapter following those chapters it would have it would have been better like if if you were to come across the notes you know after after you read the chapter read that section of the mm -hmm. notes it, it would have benefited the book uh, uh, as opposed to having to get through the entire book to get to the notes section because then you because by the time you get to the notes section you you forget what you read in you know part two and that, I that it's alluding back to and i still don't have answers and now i'm gonna have to go find these stupid sources and and because like and that's the thing that annoys me most is if i read a book i want it to be complete i don't want to have to go read something else to get more information, but I want the option to be there. I want a book to interest me enough in the subject matter that I want to go read more about it, but I don't want to have to go read something else to prove something in this book kind of a thing. I want I want my back spoon fed to me when I'm reading a book on a nonfiction subject. Don't make me work for this. So it, it should probably yeah, be a 
yeah, I, I'm not invested enough in the subject to to go and to go and look up uh, look up further. Um, I feel my rating's very harsh now. You know, I think it's the first time I've ever given low of an alley. It's uh... <laughs> it, I know, right? <laughs> I, really if, if, it was, if it wasn't for the citations and the lack of pictures, um, I, I, I'd have given it a four. Uh, yeah, but um, yeah, that, that, that's what's knocked it down for me. If I was more interested in the subject matter, which is you know my fault, not the author's, I suppose. Um, but you know, I can't get over my prejudices that's that's <laughs> I, there's a lot i'm not going to be there's a lot i can't get over when i'm reviewing these books so um yeah that's perfectly valid well she in, in her epilogue um she writes uh fern morrow woods the benders keepers of the devil's end was the first account of the bender crimes to try to separate the fact from the folklore and as such i am hugely indebted to her work on the subject well, I want to read that book because we don't know what that book contains that might have been incorporated into this one. You know, how hugely indebted is it? So further reading might be required. And I will say this is the kind of book that makes me have a lot more sympathy to newbies who come into the Jack the Ripper case because it is sort of that, you know, we talk about like somebody who reads a certain book as their only exposure to whatever the book may be. It's their only exposure to Jack the Ripper. They're just going to take on board all of the facts without necessarily checking the sources or checking the, mm -hmm. the they're just going to believe it. And we know a case of that recently where a, an author just completely invented a lot of things and everybody just believes it because, well, why I don't know, but they do. And so it does make me have sympathy, not for the authors who do that, but for the people who will read one book, because now I'm going to go around like, I know about the vendors, I read this one book, and, and I didn't have my citations and my sources on hand to check it so I could go, well, that's a little sus kind of a thing. And, and the way she did it made it harder, in my opinion, to check her sources. So I the more I'm doing it, the more I'm talking myself out of giving her that 0.25. I'm just going to keep whittling it down because the more I think about it, it is kind of frustrating when you're reading a nonfiction book and you don't have the option of quickly and easily checking your sources. So mm -hmm. it is a flaw. It is a major flaw in the book. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And I don't want to dismiss that as being something that's okay to do. But I, I'm, I'm giving her a pass because she did attempt to show you where all of her sources were. She just didn't attach them to the specific pieces in the book in the manner that I would have liked it to have been done. But I found the way she did it to make it more difficult to, to check, to, to, to verify her sources to anybody who wants to. So I have a problem with that. And as a, but as an author's first book, which oh, as an author's is, first book, it's, it's amazing. It's a triumph. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that should be mentioned. It is her first book. And the writing in it, when I when I read that it was her first book, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. But mm -hmm. shockingly, they did a very good job of, I don't know if she's just naturally gifted and there was very little editing to do, or uh, her editors really did a good job of making it a, a, a nice uh well-crafted story all right well this concludes the book club discussion portion of our podcast joining me now to discuss her book is author susan genesis 
Hi. Hello. Welcome Hello. to Off the Shelf. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We chose your book, Hell's Half Acre, uh, for our September book. And I know it's your first book. And as our listeners can tell, you are from the UK. What prompted you to be interested in a story about a family of German immigrants immigrating to America and setting up a killing field in the middle of the Kansas Plains? Um, so I first, I collect all sort of kind of true crime ephemera. Um, and so I found this huge, great book in a local charity shop. I guess that'd be a thrift shop for you guys. Um, and it's just like a big index of all these like weird, horrible crimes. And I think the book's from the 90s. Um, and anyway, so the Bender family, this family of criminals, um, was one of the entries in this book. Um, and it was so fascinating to me because it's such a specific story and it's so kind of unique to a time and place. Um, and over the course of my undergraduate degree, I did a lot of medical history. Um, and then when I did my master's, I looked at the intersection between kind of uh, medical history and crime. So I got really interested in things like the mugshot and tracking of criminals in the 19th century. Um, and I've always kind of been very interested in America and American history generally. Um, my grandma spent loads of time there and she would show me these huge, great picture books kind of all these beautiful landscapes, then I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, and so I finished my master's and I just thought, you know what, I really want to, I want the answers. I want more information about this case because a lot of the stuff that was available was quite condensed um, and often quite confusing. Um, and I just thought, now is the time. I think I can fight, like I had the skills now to kind of go out and write about this. Um, and obviously I went over to America as well. Um, and that was hugely exciting. So it's kind of a, an inevitable and also dream project for me, I think. One of our um, podcast co-hosts lives in Kansas, right outside of the area where this happened. So this was a, a passion project book for him. He, he was the one who selected this one because the benders are a case that he grew up with decided opinions about. And um, and your book is is does not take the track that the decided opinion um, of <laughs> of the prevailing the prevailing um, urban legend. I'm American, also. I did know about the Bloody Benders um, mostly through uh, retellings of the story. Basically, any crime story, any supernatural story, they have their take in America on the Bloody Benders story. Um, I didn't know a lot of the. The, the facts that I thought I did. It was one of those like urban legend stories that I know isn't really, it, it, it happened, but I knew more of the myth. Like in my mind, the bloody benders, once they left their homestead were never seen or heard from again. And nobody knew what happened to them. And it was a great big mystery. Jonathan, that the, my, my co-host who lives in Kansas, he was of the opinion that York, uh, the brother had tracked them down and killed them, which you dispense with entirely in your book as, as, a, as an option. Uh, one of the things we wanted to know is what do you think happened to the benders after all of the 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 source material is, is is dried up there are no further leads but what do you think happened to the benders um so this is the question that i obviously get asked the most yep. um, and it's sort of sometimes my so my kind of prevailing opinion is that they probably split up the older and the younger couple at some point 
Um, and I think that both of them, both sets of people probably continued in a life of crime in some capacity, just because I don't think you can commit a series of crimes like they did and then just go and live in normal society and not kind of continue with some sort of crime. Um, I tend to think that the younger couple especially were quite proficient con artists. Um, so I think they might have ended up, I mean, in the book, I talk about how one of their accomplices, if you will, Frank McPherson, ended up in Colorado. And actually a huge amount of the York family ended up in Colorado as well. Um, and it was a very kind of busy, affluent, transient place. And I think that would have been the perfect place for a group of criminals to go. I mean, from there, I think really, I feel like they might have been killed by other criminals, by people who potentially didn't even know they were the Bender family or members of the Bender family. Um, I don't, I know there's a theory out there that Kate specifically ends up running an inn. Um, and I sort of, re <laughs> I personally really want to believe that, but I also just don't quite know if I can, kind of knowing about her character. Um, but also, you know, it's, I think sometimes, you know, some people get together and they commit crimes that maybe they would never have committed separately. So perhaps if Gebhardt died, for example, maybe she would have gone on and done something like that. But I tend to subscribe to Alexander York's theory that they were killed at some point on the open frontier because I just don't. I, but then, you know, obviously Bend is such a common surname. That's sort of a useless way of tracking them as well. Um, and I think that's also why maybe they would not have bothered changing it. Because, I mean, at the time they're in Kansas, there's another family in the area called Bender. And then a couple of years later, the sheriff is called Bender. Um, so it's not like you can use that as a way to kind of find out where they were and what they were doing. But, yeah, I think probably they were killed by other criminals or they just died of some old kind of frontier happenstance, which obviously we know happened to people all the time. Yeah, and that's why it took so long for them to be found out is because death was not an uncommon occurrence. Uh, Absolutely. So um, so getting into the meat of, of our book discussions, we enjoyed the book. I thought for a first novel, and this is your first novel, which was surprising to me. It was surprisingly well-written, which I know sounds very condescending, but <laughs> true crime books- Thank you. <laughs> true crime books tend not to be well-written. Like, uh, you know, I, I recently on our, I think it was our last podcast, I went on solid like 10 minute rants about how badly one of these books were written. My, my co-hosts were just like- <laughs> It was bad. Yours was not bad. Yours was good. I was very impressed with the writing and, and the editing. The one quibble that we all kind of had were very brutal on people who don't cite their sources, people who don't properly attribute things, or people who have what I call like narrative invention. Like we're talking about the past, we're talking about a story, and you don't always know every little detail of what happens. So there's going to be some invention. You know, like one of the things I did, like there, there was a conversation between Kate Bender and John Bender where she was like, I'm not cooking, go get mom. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And you, 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 you didn't cite your sources in the traditional manner. And we struggled with that um, as we, cause I, cause I kept thinking like, how does she, is this cited? Where is she getting this source? Where is she getting this? So I struggled in the beginning reading your book because I was like, oh, 
This is just narrative invention. This is not factual. And then, of course, we get to the second half of the book, or, or the, your actual writing of the book. You start to mention that so-and-so wrote a memoir, and so-and-so wrote a memoir. You know, Mary York wrote a memoir. Uh, Leroy Dick wrote a memoir. And so I, we start getting hints like, oh, there is source material for it, but you don't actually cite in the way that most people are used to. You write a very narrative story. And then at the second half of the book, it's here's where I got this, here's where I got this, here's where I got this. So you do list your sources that you have, but it's not like pinpointed on each thing, which for me, that was a struggle while I was reading it because I kept thinking, how does she know this? Where did she get this from? Until I started to realize how you had written the book. Um, we struggled with that a lot. And so I was just curious, like what, what was, what was the reasoning behind how you chose to do this? Because it was, it was not, unknown in the history of book writings. It's just not the typical uh, way that it's normally done. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was writing it, the way that I did it is that I would write a chapter and then, um, because obviously I did a couple, like two degrees, though I was citing the way that I would have cited for like a dissertation. Um, so it would say like all the chapters were, I guess, done in a more traditional way that you would expect, especially from a history book. And then it was the it was actually a decision we made with the editor because I had done it like I'd done all the sources like that. So initially when I handed in the manuscript, they were all done in that way. Um, and I think the reason basically the reason we decided to do it, I guess, is kind of narrative endnotes is how I would describe it. Um, is that I felt like you it wasn't giving enough of a kind of indication of how I was using the sources together um, and also I mean especially for the first half of the book was a bit of a nightmare because a lot of what I was working with was things like oral testimony and oral history and things that had been written down in newspapers and collected in like the centenary documents and obviously a certain amount of that you can verify with things like census data um, and you can kind of look at the common collection of facts take them out and verify them as much as possible but certainly in the first half of the book that's why those notes were written like that because so much of what I was dealing with was not I guess as concrete as the second half of the book um, we don't because obviously they didn't know that the crimes were being committed initially. And then once the crimes were discovered, suddenly everybody has a story about the benders. And one of the big questions was kind of like, well, how do you deal with that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, I think the the reason that we went with the narrative style for the end notes is because the whole book is obviously written in a narrative style. Um, and I think so much I know I talk about this in the beginning there with a case like this there is a real kind of difficulty between separating fact and folklore um because so many of the sources that I had available especially for the first half of the book which is people's like encounters with the family and how they're behaving in the community um these are all kind of stories that were told to people after the crimes were discovered so obviously they're colored in a very specific way and the documents themselves kind of range from everything to newspaper articles to family histories um to kind of Leroy Dick obviously dictates this whole story to a woman called Jean McEwen and that's a really interesting source because some of it like is verifiable some of it definitely isn't <laughs> um and I think the my, the big question I felt was obviously the folklore is such a massive part of this story and also such a big part of why it's endured that I did want to try and keep 
some of that in there um because I think it is just important to the way that like the crimes were treated within the community as well um and then a couple of sources so there's a big petition that's drawn up by the townspeople um which lists the names of the missing men before the bodies were discovered in the orchard um and there's also a letter written by a man called James Roach who's kind of a tavern owner in a town up north north of where the crimes were committed where he's specifically asking for help um and those sources were extremely important because they're one of the few really like I guess good primary documents that exist prior to the discovery of the crimes um and they obviously list the people who were missing as well because when I went into it I had no idea like if the victims names (laughs) were even right because they're reported in all sorts of different combinations across lots of newspapers um and so you know I do wish that there were slightly more verifiable sources available for the first part of the book but I think that's why I chose to write the end notes in the way that I did and also it it would have been kind of good if I could have I mean I noticed that some people have talked about the end notes right because um someone had left a comment saying these are really hard to find like it's not easy to just go straight to the document online and look at the sentence and part of that's because some of them aren't online, but lots of them are now. They're on Kansas memory. Um, so if you want to, you can go and try and decipher the handwriting, <laughs> which is what I spent hours doing. Certainly the way the notes were written initially did look very different. Um, and I think that's partly because of just the disparity of the sources between the first and the second half of the book, really. How, like, Did you know about the Merrick testimony prior to? How did you... Uh, know about the Merrick testimony? Um, So I had no idea that existed. And then when I, but I also had no idea that all the documents written by like Thomas Beers, Colonel Peckham, um, I think it's BJ Perkins, the county clerk. So I had no idea that any of this existed. And then when I went to the Kansas State Archives, I'd requested the boxes beforehand, but they were just labeled as like governor's correspondence related to crime and criminals and then the benders. Um, And they pulled them all out. And I was so excited to discover that there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, telegrams, there's photographs, there's maps, there's court orders, all of this stuff was in there. Um, And as far as I was aware, like no one had really gone through it systematically. Um, And so as I was working through it, obviously I knew kind of who I was looking out for. So I was looking out for Thomas Beers, Um, I was looking out for Colonel Peckham um, and then you kind of start the most important set of documents initially for me were all the letters that were written in 1873 and 1874 where like Thomas Beers talks about going out to Henrietta to Denison and then there's all these expense sheets that show just exactly where these detectives are at various points in time Um, and then as I was making my way through the rest of the documents. So I went through all of them chronologically. And some of them are like very easily discardable because it will be like, I saw Kate Bender with Jesse James and she was naked. You know, it's that kind of like ridiculous, like, <laughs> where does this come from? Testimony. It was um, fan, it's, then, they were writing fan fiction back in the day. <laughs> honestly, yes. Like that's what some of them read like. And some of them are these like incredibly detailed and interesting letters about just frontier life. But obviously they just don't like their neighbors. 
sort of what's going on. Um, but yeah, so, and then I came across this kind of collection of letters that were all from the Detroit House of Corrections. Um, and so with these sources, you got the letters from uh, the man Nicholson, who like runs the prison, the superintendent. And then within that, you've got these letters written by Samuel Merrick and their statements of, and there's two, there's kind of one that's a bit short, and then there's one that's a lot longer. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'm just going to read them. Samuel Merrick's a great writer. So they were also just like really interesting to read. Um, but as I was going through them, I started noticing that a lot of details that he was talking about matched up with like the letters that were written in 1873. So Samuel Merrick is giving this testimony in 1879. So obviously a couple of years later at the other end of the decade, but it's things like Mud Creek. He references specific homesteads and areas. And then I was like, okay, so maybe there is something here. And then in one of Thomas Beer's letters, he talks about a man called Missouri Bill. And then Sam Merrick talks about Missouri Bill, talks about Frank McPherson. And then obviously, so I started looking into all of that. And I knew previously that Frank McPherson had killed a man in Parsons, which is a town not too far from Cherryvale. And that had initially just been in there, kind of a side quest, if you will. Um, and, then I and then it became obvious that actually all these people were implicated in the same group. Um, and I started doing things like I found Missouri Bill's jail records from, I can never say this whole thing. It's the Western Corps for the Western District of Arkansas. Um, and I found his records there and they're for William McPherson. But then in pencil on the bottom, they say like Missouri Bill in jail, Gainsbourg. Um, so as more and more of these people kind of came to light and I was able to verify that, were, yes, they were in this place at this time. Yes, they were known to be operating within this group. That was kind of the most exciting part of the research form because nothing had been about that lot before. Um, and I felt at the time there was a lot in the newspapers about this idea that they the Benders had been working with a wider group, um, but nobody was really sure who that was. Um, and I felt like, oh, here it is. Here are these people. Like this is this kind of roughly organized gang of horse thieves who are operating in this area. Um, and so that was a really exciting source to find. And, and I understand, like you said, you know, like with with testimony, like what's the folklore versus what what's the facts, you know, and everybody's got to put a little narrative invention in there to make the story flow. Yours, I think, were definitely backed up by source material. Like, and obviously you're going to take like, I don't believe this neighbor's account. I believe Merrick's account. But uh, so that was that was one um point of contention that we did have, which you have addressed nicely. And again, I do want to say for the listener, it's not that the sources aren't there. It's like when you, and I did get it once I started reading through your sources, how you, you are drawing the story from like five different accounts of the same events. So you have to sort of like combine. So it's not as easy as going, I have this from this paper. Like obviously Merrick's testimony comes from Merrick's letter. Uh, but when you're drawing from like five different sources, it's not as easy to go this I got from here because you got it from, you know, a, a, a set of things. The, I, I think the only other like real criticism of the book that we had was the Welshman wasn't interested in Kansas people. <laughs> so do you find what's the, who's the next, uh, uh, 
person that you're going to be or, or case that you're going to be writing on. You had mentioned in our pre-chat that you were uh, now working on another book. And I was curious what your next endeavor is going to be. Um, so it's quite different, actually. It's like it's still in the true crime, I guess, like space. Um, but it's so it's basically about a woman who was one of the most famous showgirls in America in the 1950s and 60s. Her name, her stage name was Candy Bar um, and her her actual name was Juanita Slusher. Um, and she then died in complete obscurity and is not very well known outside of her home state of Texas now. Um, but basically she ran away from home as a very young child um, and ended up being sex trafficked. Um, and she's widely considered to be the first porn star, um, even though she doesn't remember the circumstances of the video that became so famous. Um, but eventually she broke herself out of this. She shot her husband who was pimping her out um, and she became very, very popular burlesque dancer. She has this amazing sense of humor right at the height of her thing. Um, she's sent to prison on a fake marijuana charge and it becomes very obvious that the people who had paid to have sex with her when she was underage were worried that she'd start pointing fingers. Um, and so they kind of set her up on this drugs bust and she does end up going to prison. And then when she's in prison, she does things like teach other inmates how to read and write. She starts performing at the prison rodeo. Um, she becomes a real kind of folk hero for the working class people of Texas. Um, but then when she comes out of prison, the rest of her life is really difficult. She kind of struggles with her persona, candy bar and herself. She wants to be known for herself. She, she writes poems. She wants to be famous for that. But obviously all people are really interested in is candy bar. Um, so yeah, it's about her life and her story. Um, and also about my kind of investigation into her life. Um, and why she, my sort of like, because I feel a really strong personal connection to her. Um, so it's kind of like a genre mash of things. Um, and we'll be, my partner and I will be going stateside um, to do the research, but also to do things like go to the Angola prison rodeo and stuff like that. So it's, it's an opportunity for me to write about a period of history that I've always been fascinated with, which is um, kind of golden era Las Vegas and all that organized crime and everything that's going on there. Um, but also a chance to kind of bring a really important pop culture woman's life kind of back into the light so she can be remembered how she deserves to be. Well, and it's also it's interesting to me because I've long thought I my interest in true crime is uh, through the psychology aspect. I'm very interested. I, I've said if I if I had my life to do over again, I would become a forensic psychologist. And I've always thought about how uh, what do you do? How do you live your life after you're notorious? You know, that's a different kind of like we look at all of these people now who who desperately crave fame or who want to be famous and they'll do anything to get it. And then I'm, I, I just think like, OK, once your 15 minutes of Kardashian-esque fame are over, like, how do you go back and live your life after that? And, and so that's interesting to me, like that story, like as you're telling me this story, I'm like, wow, like if, if, if you know, how do you. How do you yeah. live a normal well, life? Yeah, because she she was basically became known as the notorious candy bar. Like that was the epithet that would just stuck to her for the rest of her life. Um, and it seems like she would move to communities and 
it would be this like the they wouldn't want her there because you know she was famous for being a stripper but nobody really wanted a stripper living in their town um and she'd be like harassed by teenage boys and stuff like that um but she also was like a hugely generous person I mean she died in poverty because she basically gave away money to everybody else because she was desperate to help family members and other people in the community I mean there's a great story about her reading in a newspaper uh, and she's met and screwed by an insurance company and she pawns some of the really expensive fur and up at his house and just gives him the money um Wow. And she's just a really, really interesting woman. And the way that she talks as well is very distinctive and she's very principled. Um, so, yeah, she's just a really cool lady. If you do decide to go to Las Vegas or Texas, I'm going to strongly encourage you not to go in the months of July or August. Pick pick a different <laughs> month. I don't think English constitutions are equipped for dealing with Texas or Las Vegas. Uh, well, I think we're going in April. We'll okay, that'll, in April. that'll be fine. That's uh, that's. Oh, I might be there. I might be there too. I'm going to Utah to hike. But anyway, um, yeah. So I I don't think English people are equipped to deal with Texas summers or Las well, Vegas summers. I mean, I I so I was in Australia. Um, I'm all right with dry heat. It's like we're here. We get really, it's really humid because we're in town, and that I cannot stand. But a good, good, strong dry heat, I'm normally all right with. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. I live in Florida, unfortunately, <laughs> for so many reasons. But, um, yeah, but yeah. So I, is there anything you haven't been asked about this book that you wish somebody would ask you that you're dying to talk about? Um, I don't think so, actually. I mean, lots of people have asked lots of, re- I said, like, obviously, I get asked kind of the routine questions, which are like, what do you think happened to the Benders? Um, why do you think this case persists? Um, I often get asked that classic question that's like, oh, why true crime now? And then I say 3000 people visited this murder site and tore it to pieces. So true crime all the time forever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating to me. Like I, we, we, we deal with, so we're currently, as I said before, we're in a community that's sort of getting some stick now for being interested in crime because it's it's become the uh cause celeb and it's like all true crime people don't respect the victims and you guys don't Mm. respect the victims which is a it's a hard label to overcome without sounding defensive because how do you defend yourself against uh you know how that's that you're, you're just listening to the noise and not dealing with actual facts people don't look at look at the facts before they they make a judgment. And I did say when I was reading your book, one of the things I had was like, I understand people who come to our, our community and, and they've read one book and they've decided that this is the, this is the end all and be all. This is the full, they don't research anymore. They think this take is, and, and I would never ask why, obviously being a true crime podcast, I would never ask, uh, why are you interested in true crime? Because we are all here for that same reason. And, And I hate that question. I really do. I, it bothers me on a cellular level because what we're really interested in is we're, we're interested in extremes of human behavior. Like I get offended when people ask me that question, like, why are you interested in this? I'm like, I don't know. Why are you interested in the Kardashians? This is way more interesting than trash TV, you know? So how do you answer that? It was funny actually doing the panel I did at the weekend because one of an audience member um, asked the question, like, are you a true crime fan? 
you know, and it was me um, and Thomas Morris, who wrote a book about the Dublin railway murder, um, and David Bushman, who wrote The Murder at Till Pond, which is about the crime that inspired Twin Peaks. Um, it's a really interesting panel to be on. Um, and there was this question, I was like, yes. Like, you know, I wouldn't say, you know, true crime is my whole life, but I actively engage with true crime on a daily basis. Like I have since I was about 14 as well. It's just something I've always been drawn to. And obviously now as it's sort of picked up steam in popular culture, it's much easier to engage with it. Um, and I think there is slightly, I think you're right. I think it's coming back round the circle to judgment. Um, but I think a couple of years ago, there was kind of a space where the judgment wasn't as bad. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, lots of people listen, especially women, like really like true crime. And I thought it was interesting, actually, when I was writing about the trial in 1889, um, where one of the reporters makes the observation that the courtrooms, mostly women, like there are a lot of women who've attended this trial. And I would have loved to know kind of the gender numbers for the people who visited the crime scene as well um and kind of who was doing what you know who was squirreling away all these weird artifacts um but yeah I mean I think I used to hide it you know my parents would always be like oh you've got such ghoulish interests <laughs> um and I'd just be like yeah it just is what it is you know I mean I was also really interested in things like um like medical history so but I was the only person on, I mean, David said that he sort of kept up to date with like things that are going on with cereal at the moment um, and just kind of true crime in the news generally. But Tom was just like, no, like don't engage with true crime at all. I can't, you know, when I'm writing true crime, I don't want anything else to do with it. Whereas I, I said, like, I just come from listening more to Morbid. I'd literally been listening to a podcast before I went on stage because that's sort of, partly how I unwind and relax um and then you it's that difficult thing of explaining to people like no actually listening to like really weird intense crimes is somehow cathartic I think like it you're you feel like you're looking evil in the face and there's something comforting about that um you feel a bit more informed um but I think it can be a complicated I think either you understand it or you don't and if you don't you're never going to understand it basically and I, you know, I don't mind so much the, uh, I don't mind so much the people who just don't understand it. Like there are many interests I, people have that I do not understand. I do not understand watching sports. Uh, this baffles me. Uh, like, I don't mind playing sports. Like I will play the sport badly, but I will do it. But sitting on your couch and watching somebody else play a game absolutely baffles me to no end. I, I don't understand this concept at all. Like, why, why are you? So I don't mind people who look at me and my interest and go, uh, I don't get it. I'm fine with those people. The people I have a problem with are the people who are actually profiting off of true crime and writing about yeah. true crime and then going, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not into it for the same reasons. I'm not a gore hound. I'm not a bloodthirsty. I'm here for the victims. It's like, no, you're here for the cash. Like you will say, and, 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 yeah. I, and I, that's what I don't mind. I don't, I don't like the hypocrisy of someone who's profiting off of true crime while trying to pretend that they're in it for noble reasons that other people who write the same books aren't in it for. And so I very much appreciate you not uh, backing away from true crime interest, because I do think, like you said, it's coming back around to that, uh, 
judgmental perspective of being in it after, after all of the excite, you know, like serial and all of those podcasts were coming back around to the, to the bad side of true crime interest, which is the judgment. And the why do you like that? Well, I think it's, I think it is just like, uh, kind of, it's an interesting community to be a part of, right? Because a lot of the reviews for my book, I noticed some of people are either really into the history or they're really not. And I was talking to my editor about it a couple of months ago, and it's basically a history book disguised as a true crime book. Um, and that I think that is sort of natural because obviously I am like first and foremost a historian. Um, like I've written a, a lot about historical crime. But when I'm asked kind of what what are you, I would always say I'm a historian first. Um, so I think it's inevitable that there was going to be kind of a lot more context than maybe you would normally have. And also it's the fact of the matter, especially in the first half of the book, like obviously you're, I, I was aware that I was dealing with a lot of folklore. Um, and so I wanted to give a really strong historical grounding so that people could understand kind of where that folklore had come from. Um, and also, I think, you know, it is a case that's so specific to its environment that you do really have to understand the environment to understand, you know, when you when people ask me, why did they get away with it for so long? And I'm like, well, people were dying every which way constantly on the frontier. So it really wasn't a big deal initially that men were disappearing or that a couple of bodies had been found. Um, so I think, you know, it's yeah it's just one it's just one of those things like you and I think it's interesting actually dealing with an older case because when I first started that much information available on the victims because obviously nobody at the time was that interested in them except the family members the the benders were such a massive culture shock I think is the best way to describe them that go went against everything you expect on the frontier um that the victims I think especially because they were men uh, with the exception of obviously Marianne, who's the little girl, the 18 month year old, she's the one who's given the most, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, media spotlight, because the circumstances of her death are just so awful. And obviously, she's a tiny baby, whereas there's kind of a lack of interest in all the large grown men who were killed by the family. Um, and so when I was writing the book, I was like, I do want to know a bit more about these people and sort of where they came from and why, you know, and it became really obvious that actually people did want to look for them, like their wives, their partners, their business partners, but there just wasn't the means or the incentive necessarily. Um, so I think, you know, when you're looking at victims, it's, they're important, obviously, because they're victims, but also for the context clues that they give to the kind of wider social response to the crimes. And I'm glad I'm glad you did bring that up because it did remind me of another not criticism but uh, we talk a lot about what is necessary context to understanding the story and what is filler in all of our podcasts because we we do deal with historical uh crimes solely uh but one of the things we have talked about in previous podcasts when we're discussing books is how much of your context is necessary for understanding the surroundings and how much is just filler. And we have had this, and, and, and it did come up in your book, uh, and it was asked. And, and my feeling is if if something is introduced, I expect it to have payoff later. Mm. Uh, like if there's context in the story that I don't understand the purpose of, I'm assuming it's there because it's going to pay off later. And it's not just there for, um, 
Here's what was also happening at the time that isn't really relevant to the story, but it was also happening. And and you spent a lot of time on interesting history. One of the one of the main things, like I said in my podcast, you were talking about how um, freed slaves and, and set up the black agricultural cities and all of that. I was just I was waiting for the payoff uh, late. Like I thought, well, maybe they fled to one of these cities and that's going to come back later. And, you know, so like if something comes up and I don't see the immediate point to it, I'm expecting there to be payoff later. And it's not just there for here was also happening in Kansas at the time. Um, and so I did say like, yeah, there wasn't some payoff on some of the, the historical context because they would have been interesting if they had gone to one of the, you know, so I was waiting for where is this going to come back around in the story? And it never did. And I was like, okay, so it was just historical context. I'm not a person who loves a whole lot of extraneous historical context, just in general, no matter what it is. I, I, I want everything to, to have a connection at some later point, and I will sit there and wait for that connection to come back around. And if it doesn't, then I'm like, okay, so now you need to go write a book about this because like you left me hanging. There was like a little like drop of this, but uh, where's the rest of it kind of a thing. So um, that was a thing where we did talk about like, was this filler or was it needed context? The British person, uh, or, or Welshman, I, I, I almost said English, and he would have like risen up and beat me to death. <laughs> <laughs> um, our English, our UK member was like, "No, I needed this. I didn't know any of this. I had no idea about." It. So it all provided context for him because he didn't already have that sort of knowledge, and and we who did have the knowledge were just like. Where is this going to pay off for me later? So it was, it's, that's like sort of the thing where I was, where I talked to you earlier about, about how some things are just preference. It's not, a, it's not really a slight against your book. It's just, what do you prefer? And I can't imagine having like, you know, every author feels like this is needed context. Whereas other authors are like, this is just filler. This, I don't need this. So how did you go about deciding what context? Cause I thought like, oh, a whole thing on German immigration or how the immigrants were dealt with would have helped me understand the situation sort of more. And what the immigrant experience was like, I would have liked to have seen a bit of. Yeah, I mean, I think the I I'm someone who gets like re, so a good example is I wrote about a thousand words about a locust plague um, that I just became totally obsessed with in the research because I was like, oh my god, this fascinating like the they would come down and derail trains and eat the clothes off people's backs. And it was just insane. And I was like, I'm a very visual person as well. So just the visual element of this, I was like, this is incredible. And I wrote it all down. And then I just looked at it and I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think this can go in. Um, and there's certainly, so obviously there's, the, when Merrick is caught, he's caught by Robert Pettus, who is a black man who lives in one of these kind of uh, communities um, where you've got a real mixture of like black people and then indigenous people. And then I thought that was really interesting that this idea of like, you've got a white outlaw who's being pursued by a black member who's representing your law enforcement. Um, and then he's accompanied by indigenous people. And I think that's not necessarily like a visual that we see on the frontier that often. Um, 
And I think that was when I came across that because I, when I was going through all the court testimony and then it was, it became really obvious, oh no, Robert Pettis is a black man. You know, I had kind of wrongly assumed that he was a white kind of ex-military person. And then it's listed. You're like, oh no, he's black. He was a Buffalo soldier. That's why he's there. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you're definitely right that there could be more information about the immigrant experience, especially German immigrants. Um, I had written a bit more about that, but I'd written about it in, I guess, like quite a, a more academic way. And that was one. Of, so when I initially wrote the book, the second half of the book, especially, I wrote it and then I was looking at it and I was like, this feels like a dissertation, not like a narrative. Um, and it, I realized it was because I had been including a lot. I basically written it like you would write a dissertation. So I'd written kind of arguments and then very explicit source comparisons and all of that kind of stuff. And when I handed it into my editor, I was like, I know, <laughs> I know this is wrong. <laughs> this is completely different to the first half of the book. Um, and so I did like it took a bit longer to write because I did have to completely rewrite that section um, because it literally went from kind of true crime book to you know like half a PhD <laughs> and um, honestly and we would have been good with that we're good with the half of a PhD kind of uh history uh you know and again it's like you have to write to general audiences which I get uh we're not necessarily the general audience which is good in some ways and terrible for the author in other ways so um but yeah, I mean, we did very much enjoy your book overall. And and, and except for the Welshman, who is just like Kansas, pff, who cares? <laughs> so, like, we have spent 20 years studying your crimes and... <laughs> you can't spare five minutes for one yeah. of us. <laughs> right? We have so many interesting, like, murder situations. So we can oh, outdo yeah. you Brits on the murder front any day of the week. Well, also on the unsolved murder front as well. Like I know we've obviously got like the big one, but I really want to know, for instance, about the, the Axe, New Orleans Axe murders, the oh, Ballista that's... Axe murders. I've like, been to the house. The Black Dahlia. Have you? I'm so desperate to go to the house. Uh, just because I'm like, what does it feel like? See, I'm the bad, I'm the bad person to ask about that because I'm, I am the most stayed, uh, I literally just spent, uh, a, a, an evening at a haunted sanatorium in Kentucky on our way back through. Um, nice. and it's like the, the most haunted sanatorium in, in, in America quote. And, um, everybody's like, Ooh. and I'm like, yeah, it's dark. They could really use some lights in here. <laughs> I'm just like, I want to see the ghost. Like, come on, get yeah. some backlight. That drives me crazy. Like when you go to these places and they're all like, they're, all the lights are down. And I'm like, so what, ghosts can't appear? With like, what does the, they, they basically, you know, they make it atmospheric to hype up your uh, amygdala responses or whatever. But it's like, if, if there's ghosts, they can appear in broad daylight. If there's ghosts, they can appear under a fluorescent light bulb. Like, why are we making, let's make this a trip hazard. <laughs> so that's, anyway, I'm terrible. So I would, so Bill Liska, to get back to that, I will tell you, it, for me, it was, it was a, it was an old farmhouse. <laughs> no feeling whatsoever but for me like I did the Lizzie Borden house and all of those because I want to know the the geometry of the house and how it's yes, laid out exactly and like, yeah could somebody like in the one example I give is like in the Lizzie Borden house could somebody have snuck up the stairs and surprised 
Abby, I think her name was the stepmom. Like, yeah. would she not? Cause she was found like face down, which seems like somebody just walked up behind her. Yeah. Like, how, yeah, yeah, how yeah. Could somebody have done that without her knowing? Cause like, if you see a stranger come into your room, you're going to turn around and, you know, do this. But you would, yeah, let yeah, your, yeah, yeah. You, you would let your stepdaughter walk up right behind you without thinking a thing of it, kind of a thing. Yeah. So. And you're used to that person's presence as well, right? right? Like, you know what their footsteps sound like, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so that, that for me, I like walking the layouts just to get a what's factual, what's possible, what's plausible. Villisco was interesting. And what was interesting is like how close the other neighbors are and stuff. Like, that's the thing that's yeah. always interesting to me. Yeah, I think that that one is just such a question mark because I don't understand how, I mean, I'm a very light sleeper. My partner could sleep through a tornado. Um, so I he probably could sleep through a bunch of axe murder, but I certainly wouldn't. And I think it's unlikely that every single person in that house was that deep asleep, especially the kids, right? So right. just so, so many questions. Yeah, see, we do have interesting ones, John. Get off your high Welsh horse. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I suppose this is as good as a place to wrap it up because otherwise I will literally sit here and talk about your crime for the remainder of life. Well, I could, but I have to go and pick up my stepson from school. So, uh, Well, yeah, that, that might that might impede the, impede the discussion a little <laughs> bit. But I really do appreciate you being on. And uh, what is the name of your book upcoming about uh, Candy? that you're going to be writing. Do you have a title yet? Yeah, so at the moment, I mean, the proposal, the one they announced in um, on the publisher's marketplace is just called American Candy at the moment. Um, I mean, it won't be out until at least kind of mid 2024, okay. I don't think. Um, but I'm intending to post a lot more about the process with this one um, because there's so many visual elements to it. Obviously, when you're writing about a much older case, like we don't have any pictures of the vendors. Um, so it's much harder to kind of post about that. But this one, there's footage of her. There's obviously plenty of footage of old Las Vegas. Um, so I want to involve people in the process a bit more with this one. All right. Well, we look forward to it in 2024, whatever it may eventually be titled. But uh, it was wonderful talking to you. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you again so much for having me. This concludes this episode of Off the Shelf. Join us next month when we will be discussing The Midnight Assassin by Skip Hollinsworth. Until then, thanks for listening.